0: Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Chef Shola Olignolo thinks of food and cooking just like jazz. Jazz musicians built on the foundations of the musicians that came before them in order to create something new. Olignolo has done the very same thing to create his own food research lab where he makes Japanese malted milk bread, pumpkin seed praline, and Chinese steamed turnip
2: cake. You know, creativity has to have emotion as opposed to doing something that needs to be explained to be understood. That's what lacks in a lot of food today. If you have to explain it too much, it doesn't work.
0: Also coming up, Dan Pashman reveals the secrets behind making a better pasta salad. But first, it's my interview with New Zealand chef Monique Fizo. Her restaurant, Hiyakai, serves modern takes on Maori recipes and ingredients. Monique, uh, welcome to Milk Street.
3: More dinner. Thanks for having me.
0: Pleasure. Um, The name of your cookbook, as well as your restaurant in New Zealand, is Hiakai. Uh, Can you tell us what that title means and and where it comes from?
3: Yeah, so um, the name of the word Hiakai means hungry in Māori, but also, uh, you know, I was a young chef, really hungry for knowledge about Māori culture and cuisine, so it pretty much summed up everything that we were about. So
0: let's talk about you and cooking. You're not preparing food the way it would have been prepared 500 years ago. You're applying state-of-the-art techniques and using Maori ingredients and melding the two traditions in really interesting ways.
3: Yeah, um, we're trying to take endemic ingredients and multiculture culture and help pass that knowledge on to not just the chefs in the kitchen but to the guests that come in, you know, because of colonisation and because Māori history has been passed down orally and there was a period of almost trying to erase the culture. We actually get a lot of people who are New Zealanders themselves who come in and they actually are quite disconnected from Māori culture even though it's everywhere. So they'll have the dining experience and at the end they'll go, I never knew that these items were edible. I feel like I've learnt a lot about the culture in just one evening. And I think that's the payoff for us when we have people who walk away with not just a full stomach but a better understanding of Multiculture and cuisine.
0: So going back a few years, you met a guy called Joe McLeod. Yeah. Was, was he part of, he, was he the guy who got got you started down this path?
3: Yeah. Basically I, I'd started doing pop-ups and whenever I reflect on those first few pop-ups, I always think of them as really nice food with a sprinkling of moldydom on them. Like I didn't really get it yet and I was I just wanted to go deeper and Joe McLeod was a chef in the 60s 70s and 80s traveled the world and actually quite a phenomenal person you know for a young Maori male to go and work at the Ritz in the 70s is unheard of so I sent him an email and said you know I really want to learn more about indigenous ingredients that I can cook with um, are you able to help me and I we just spent basically the rest of the summer going on bushwalks and he taught me a whole lot. And he said to me, he goes, I've been waiting a really long time for a young Maori chef to come along and actually be interested in this stuff because nobody seems to view it as being important. And so I was like, well, I guess here I am. (laughs)
0: Let's talk about some of your recipes. You have some really unusual ingredients. Um, The birds, for example, Uh, some of the birds you use can only be harvested by one tribe at a certain time of year. So what are three or four of the ingredients you have that are really particularly unusual in your cooking?
3: Um, At the moment, we're working a lot more with the back of the manonal tree, which is this highlighter orange color and gives off, it's almost like working with turmeric, but a lot more earthy. And I do think people think I'm a bit nuts when they see me jumping out of the bush with containers of tree bark um, and orange hands. Mm. But it's one that I really enjoy working with and it has this beautiful colour and this beautiful earthy taste and lends itself well to both sweet and savoury applications. Um, Another quite unusual one is... Um, mokihu, which is the tender ends of the uh, the bracken fern, and it has almost like a marzipan taste huh. to it, and it only comes about for about six weeks out of the year. Um, and when it does, we just try to collect as many as possible. And then, and how do you use it? Um, at the moment, what we're trying to make like an almond syrup with it for a dessert. And another way we've used it is we've infused it into cream and made cheese with it so that we had like a slightly nutty, like sort of a ricotta going on. And we served that as a cheese course for a while, which was which was really cool. I, I, I like that one. I also like eating it raw as well, but I, I think I might be the only one in that camp. Um, <laughs> and the TT birds, which can only be harvested by one iwi, which is at the bottom of the South Island, I love working with those because they are so funky s- smelling and tasting. They they look like duck, but they taste like anchovy. Huh. It almost feels like a an honor and a privilege to work with those.
0: I'm sure people make a big deal about fried grubs with gnocchi, et cetera. But I mean, seriously, you've you you you've eaten them raw. You think they're peanutty. You like them. So... Just talk about cooking them and what they're like.
3: I I like it when they're really, really fresh because they, they're quite juicy. And just cooking them in a pan with a little bit of oil and a little bit of garlic is actually just a really, really beautiful way to eat them. They're kind of like a, a slinky in a way that when you put them in the pan, they kind of expand out and... They just they're just very juicy, crunchy, and delicious. I think if you took away the word grub and just said it was a juicy, crunchy, delicious potato, then no one would think any different of it
0: so the the ingredients that you've s- sourced for your restaurants, I assume now there are other markets for them they're they're starting to become maybe a bit more popular outside of your own restaurant,
3: yep, so. Um, a lot of the ingredients have started to make it into the mainstream, and there's one guy who has been supplying indigenous ingredients for for many years, and he has said that as a result of hair guy, he's seen his business was quadruple, and we've also seen a lot of restaurants open, highlighting indigenous ingredients, um, you know, incorporating different cultural aspects into their dining experience which is amazing to have kind of led the way with with that and seeing that happen in such a such a short amount of time is really cool and I think we'll look back um at this and kind of maybe in 10 years you'll see so many you'll just kind of go oh yeah well that's of course it's New Zealand there are these restaurants Mm -hmm. but I think you know it didn't seem that obvious five years ago and now it's It's making its way to the mainstream.
0: Monique, thank you so much. This has really been a a pleasure. And um, I knew so little about the food before we started. Now I know a little bit, uh, but it's fascinating. Thank you.
3: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: That was Monique Fizo. Her book is Hiakai, Modern Mari Cuisine. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Moulton, and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Sarah is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television.
4: So, Chris, before we move on take a call, I just wanted to share something that I learned last week that was really fun. I belong to this women's culinary group in New York, and we had a Zoom cook-along with um, one of our members, Shelly Chapman, who's from the Caribbean. And she's become vegan. And she made, you know, saltfish. that's a traditional mm-hmm. breakfast. Yep. So she made her version of salt fish. And you'll never believe what she used uh, because obviously it wasn't fish. She used canned hearts of palm. Hmm. So that's odd right there. Hmm. But then she grated them, coarsely grated them. Ah. And you would think they wouldn't grate. They do, they right. grate very nicely. And then she cooked it down with, you know, a habanero and a whole bunch of vegetables. And then to make mm. it taste like fish, and I thought this was brilliant, she ground up some nori. It was, I mean, I'm not a salt fish aficionado, no pun intended, but it was amazing how perfect it was. So were you uh,
0: cooking along with her?
4: Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. Because I just figure you learn more if you cook along. Right. And then we did the double fried plantains, you know, the tostones, right. and that was really fun too. And I also learned that in between the fries, if you soak, you know, there's it's double fry, you can soak the plantain in garlic and lime juice, and then it absorbs it and makes it even more exciting. Or it may even be before the first fry. I have to go back and look at my notes. But I both learned about Caribbean cooking, but I also thought for people who are vegan, It's really nice when something just tastes that fresh and wonderful. And also thinking that if you want to get a fishy taste without eating fish, just grind up some nori. Hmm. There you go.
0: I think nori is a seasoning ground up. We actually I visited a restaurant in Portland, Maine. They do nori, you know, ground up like in a blender to make a powder of it. And they use it in a vinaigrette.
4: Oh. And That's it is so
0: good. I mean, just wow. a little bit of it, you know, just a hint of it. Yeah. I think he actually toasts it first, and then he grinds it up. She did, too. Yeah. It's the best vinaigrette in the world. It just has a little hint of that, and um, it's very good. So, Sarah, we're not too old to learn new Learn something right? new. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Okay, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hi, Jeff from Loveland, Ohio. How are you? I am fine. I have a crazy question. We love crazy questions. <laughs> Why can't I find mutton anywhere?
0: Well, I'll tell you a story. In Vermont, where I spent a lot of time, after the Civil War, like the 1870s and 80s, there were more sheep than people. So there was a lot of mutton because the definition of mutton is like sheep that's over six months old. Yeah. So it's just old sheep meat. I mean, versus lamb, which is, you know, something that's younger and better. I'm not sure you'd find it preferable because it's much stronger. It's a very strong
5: meat. Well... I hate to disagree, but I do. (laughs) And I grew up eating game meat, and we had grass-fed cows. And I kept hearing how gamey mutton was, and I thought, oh, that might taste like game. So I found a place in Owensboro, Kentucky, because they have barbecue joints down there. Uh And they sold it to me, but that's the only place I could find it.
0: Well, how was it? Oh,
5: it was delicious. It was greasy as heck, but (laughs) you'll eat a little bit of the fat.
0: (laughs) But it's a lot stronger than lamb, right?
5: Oh yeah, yeah yeah. The
0: point. Okay, well, okay. I'm talking to a true believer here, right? I mean, you're you're all in on this thing, okay?
5: I have driven four hours to get this stuff twice.
0: <laughs> Man, this is like this is religion for you, right?
5: I've done dumber stuff. Trust me. Yeah, so far, <laughs> all of the butcher shops. Cause I live in north of Cincinnati. We've still got some real old good butcher shops that actually still slaughter, and they all said, "Yeah, we could get it until the day after." It's like, oh yeah, we can't get it, but. All those lambs have got to come from somewhere.
4: Well, no, but the thing is that mutton is older than lamb. So if you raise lamb and you slaughter it, you know, quickly, you don't have to raise it as long. It doesn't cost you as much money. And there's no
0: market Uh, for mutton.
4: Right. You know, early 1900s, it was very, very popular in bars. You know, you go and get mutton chops. And then what happened, I think, during the war is people were sort of forced to eat more mutton and maybe got a little bit tired of it. So it wasn't in such vogue afterwards. And then also something else happened, which is wool was not in as much demand after, you know, all those synthetic materials were invented.
0: You just have to find somebody who raises lamb. And just get them to leave one out for you till it's a little older. I mean, I'm <laughs> well, serious. What That's happened? what I would do. And then, then get the whole thing, get it butchered and throw in the freezer.
5: Right? I guess I'm going to have to do that. I thought I could go to a fair this year and say, all right, children with your lambs, what do you do with their mothers when they no longer produce? Although it makes me sound kind of creepy.
0: I was going to say, that's a really bad idea. (laughs) Yeah. They're going to cart you off. I like the fact you like strong meat, and you're not afraid of a little grease. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys so much. Jeff, you've livened things up around here.
4: Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Bonjour, Sarah. Hi, Christopher. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you. And you?
0: Well, listening to your accent. We love it. Slightly happier.
4: Thank you. Bonjour.
6: (laughs) I'm Gabrielle. I'm calling from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. My cooking question is about French toast.
4: (laughs) Okay. Pain perdu. You should be the expert, Gabrielle. (laughs) How can we help you?
6: Well, every other weekend, I bake French toast. I use loaves from the local bakery. Last weekend, I was out of regular milk, so I used soy milk instead. To my surprise, the result was wonderful. It was golden and crispy. So I was wondering what happened if there was something chemical going on and if other ingredients or types of milk could yield even better results.
4: What kind of bread was it?
6: It was a sourdough loaf. It was vanilla-flavored soy milk, so I didn't add any, uh, anything else other than the two eggs.
4: Tell me why you liked it better
6: When it cooked in the um, cast iron pan, it was easier. It didn't burn. It was just only golden brown
4: and crispy. Both times you use butter to cook it in? Yes, a little bit.
0: When you heat milk, it will caramelize and brown. If you heat soy milk, it's not going to be affected the same way. So I think the soy milk will brown less readily than the sugars Mm -hmm. and other proteins and other things in milk. I do think, however... The type of bread also is critical. Do you use the same bread all the time?
6: I use stale bread. I buy the the bread fresh, but then I put it in the fridge because I heard that stale bread is better.
0: It'll absorb more of the liquid. So the bread was exactly the same every time. The only thing that changed was using soy milk instead of milk. Exactly. Yeah. Milk will brown more readily with heat and caramelize. So that's why the difference, you could simply cook it at uh, lower heat, and that'll solve that problem. I'll go in the opposite direction. I would soak your bread in half and half. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, I found that it's the staleness of the bread, it's the type of bread, and the amount of time you let it sit in the custard, if you really let it soak, and the bread mm-hmm. is going to soak it up because it's slightly stale and it's a substantial bread, then you get that really wonderful sort of crispy exterior and creamy interior. Mm-hmm. I used to cook it on an electric griddle and eventually got to the point where I reduced the heat quite a lot because I I wanted to cook it through properly without burning the outside. And it did burn fairly quickly. Okay. Uh, What kind of bread were you using? I used the typical very dense white loaf. Hollow bread is also really good.
4: Okay. Great. Thank you so much.
0: Gabrielle, take care. Yes,
4: thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or you can simply email us at questions at Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: Hi, this is Stanley from Venice, Florida. I'm a novice baker, and I really appreciate the recipes and the step-by-step demo on
4: your website. One thing that's catching me up sometimes, there's so many varieties of apples out there. Is there one variety that's better than another one?
0: Uh, Oh, boy. (laughs) Let me make some broad sweeping generalizations. Just about any variety that's come about in the last 20 years, I don't like because they're all sweet. And they've lost the tartness and and even the savoriness of some classic apple varieties. I just don't like their texture. I don't like their flavor. It's just much too sweet. They don't make good pies, et cetera. The two you can always find, of course, are the Macintosh, which I think has actually very good flavor. It's not a baking apple, though. And a Granny Smith, which is the most flavorless fruit in the history of fruit, but it doesn't break down when you bake it. I have in the past suggested you bake with half-Grannies, half-Max as a last-ditch crisis solution. If you can't find good varieties, you'll get texture and flavor. I would go back to the Cortlands, Brayburn. Actually, this fall in my co-op, they had a bunch of old-fashioned varieties, Sheep's Nose, which looks like a Sheep's Nose. And a lot <laughs> of those old varieties, Cox Pippin, they're not super sweet. And they have spiciness to them. Wine sap, maybe McCowan, M A C O U N, which I love. Worst case scenario, okay. mix Grannies and Max, but it's nothing like the old varieties. If you like interesting flavor, I mean, Sarah, you agree?
4: I hundred percent agree. If you you know have a local farmers market. Well, actually, in Florida, do they grow apples? I don't think so. So that's unfortunate. I try to find, as he said, some of the lesser-known, more artisanal, old-fashioned varieties. And I agree with you about the flavor of Macintosh, especially straight up. But it really does fall apart. I mean, in a pie, if you have one pie that holds its shape like a Granny Smith, and then it's okay to have a Macintosh that falls apart. And Granny Smith, it's so funny. It used to be the apple that would make you pucker because it was so, so tart. But it has gotten very bland. I would say, though, to always mix up a couple of different kinds of apples. Okay, that should help.
0: I was going to say, go to your local orchard and get some of the old varieties. Forget that. Sorry, stupid idea.
4: I mean I do have a mango tree in my backyard Ooh, and a grapefruit well, tree and uh, an orange tree, but no apple options here. So No. Yeah, apples are one of my favorite and I've just been not happy with how things have been turning out, but something I didn't think of is mixing different varieties together. So Yeah.
0: Well, our condolences, but of course you can go <laughs> to your backyard and things look better in your backyard than yeah, do mine right now. Mango.
4: So. Ooh. <laughs> I love mango. Yeah. Wow.
0: Thank you so much for calling, and yes. maybe we'll send you some corals. You can send us some mangoes. We'll yeah, do a trade. Yeah, we'll do a that That's a great. It's a barter.
4: Wonderful trade. All Take right. Care. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye bye.
0: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next is my conversation with research chef Shola Olinyolo. That and more after the break.
7: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home too. Head to allagash.com/locator to find Allagash White near you.
6: For 21 plus only. Please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host Christopher Kimball. Right now it's my interview with Chef Shola Yolo. Shola, welcome to Milk Street. Hello, thank you for having me. Um, you grew up in England, Europe, West Africa. Could you just tell us a little bit about um, your
2: childhood? I grew up in Nigeria and uh, spent some time in England.
0: You, you describe Nigeria, Lagos, as really being a fascinating place. Uh, fashion designers, musicians, etc.
2: Well, it's, it's a very interesting dynamic city of commerce and art and culture. Uh, And uh, it's, you know, it's kind of... It's basically, I call it the Naples of West Africa. You know, traffic is a mess. There's food everywhere. Things just go, like, 24-7. It's a very active community of artists, artisans. You know, there's micro economies below the surface. Like, for example, people sell computers and then there's, like, a whole computer part industry that is, like, completely underground. (laughs) So, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to the apple store in Lagos to get your stuff fixed.
0: <laughs> save 50% and go to the guy down the road. Great.
2: You save more than 50%. <laughs> well,
0: you sound like you know what you're talking about. Um, let's talk about you and your cooking career. In the early 90s, you worked at Deux Cheminet and you said it was, I think you said it was the best job you ever had. And you, you mentioned the, in part because it was so diverse. Why was Deux so diverse?
2: Well, it, it, first of all, it was called Du Cheminet because the building had two chimneys. It was designed by a very famous American architect, Frank Furness. Mm-hmm. It's a really beautiful historic building. It was the private club in Philadelphia for Princeton University. And so when we walked through the place, you know, the, the woodwork, the banisters, the ornate ceilings, the chandeliers, the library which had to be the best cookbook library in the United States during its Mm. existence was just an incredible resource for young cooks, not only from the concept of food, but also from a multidisciplinary approach to life and experiences. That's how I sort of see things like, I think you should not just be a cook. You know, that's the problem with cooks today is they just cook, they play with food. That's it. Like they know nothing about history, literature, music, architecture, that helped to shape, you know, ecology, nature, and food, you know. So it was a great experience in that sense. Now, beyond all that, Fritz was, you know, a Pennsylvania Dutch German who was, uh, had a degree in microbiology and animal husbandry from the University of Pennsylvania. So we're talking having access to a very great intellectual and academic resource in your chef.
0: This is an odd question, but there's this tension, I think, between people, especially here in the States, who, when they think about other countries, think about them in terms of their traditional food ways. But I I find when I get off a plane and go somewhere, it's always much more interesting and vital and changing than than what people think. Do you find yourself caught in that, that? On one hand, people expect you maybe to do more traditional food, but with your studio kitchen, you're really on the cutting edge of you know, pushing food forward.
2: I mean, you're correct, yes. There's that conflict still in the minds of a lot of people. But I think that's only because of a very kind of a, you know, narrow focus. You know, right. it's a very my- myopic way to see food. Right. You know, I-, I think it's possible for both to coexist. And I don't think like one should be in competition with other. Just try and grow and see how it moves. You know, like music, for example, is the best analogy. In the American context, for example, jazz. You know, you went through the 40s, 50s, bebop, Miles, Monk, Mingus, and then we started to get someone like Wynton Marsalis. You know, someone who was schooled in the traditional context and then stuck with the traditional context. And Wynton was always, like, offended by Miles Davis's last few albums before he died. But Miles was more like, it's still music, you know, no art. Evolves without change and evolution. Right. I think that's how cooks should think. You can you can do both. You know, I can cook Nigerian food straight up. I can make a jollof rice, just like you would have in West Africa. And I, you know what? If I feel like making it in a paella pan and use like chorizo from Valencia and shrimp from Palamos in the north of Spain, mm-hmm. it's still jollof rice. Spanish people are now curious. I'm like, this is uh, Jollof Caliente, you know? And they're like, (laughs) before you know it, we're having a conversation instead of starting a war, you know?
0: So, what is the studio kitchen? Could you just explain? And and by the way, what is a research chef and how do you make a living being a research chef?
2: So, the studio kitchen was just a, a, you know, when I left the restaurant industry in the mainstream sense and I wanted to develop further as a cook, you know, as, as a, as a black person in America, you know, the idea of going out to get like half a million bucks from a bunch of investors to do what I wanted to do was just not an option. So as you know, I said, it's possible to stay creative. You know, I had worked for some very high profile people and I thought I've had enough of just continuing to work. I wanted to hone in on the precise details of cooking in a research sense. So I went to do some stages. I went to the fat doc In England, it wasn't so much fun because it was just like you go to this Michelin restaurant and you just kind of like, you know, pick airs of grapefruit for like two days. This this is
0: Hester Blumenthal, you mean?
2: Exactly, yeah. Yeah. You know, not to say anything negative about them, but stages were not for me. You just kind of like become like an unpaid employee to like make a Michelin star have better food, you know. So (laughs) And I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to learn. So I came back home and I said, you know what, I'm just going to start my own idea of like what would be an atelier. You know, just like an artist Mm -hmm. would be, or musician And I called it the studio kitchen And I I started with just like whatever funds I had And I would supplement it by doing occasional pop-ups For like the intellectually, culinarily curious And so as it continued to grow That became my opportunity to test ideas That were neither conforming to public demand or, Or trends in the industry So I could do a lot of interesting creative things, you know Eventually, as I grew and Studio Kitchen grew and my ability became known, the consulting part then came in where someone's developing a concept and they need a chef to help them figure out the details.
0: So give us some examples of people who come to you at the Studio Kitchen. They have a problem you need, they want you to solve, and how do you solve it?
2: So they're not necessarily just problems, but like projects. Like several years ago, for example, there's an entity in in Philadelphia called HoneyGrow. And the owner was fascinated with the idea of bringing healthier food to people. And he wanted to basically coalesce two existing concepts, stir fry quick food and salads. And so it's like bringing together like maybe like uh, sweet green and like payway together, right. <laughs> which, you know, it makes sense. During the winter, you'll sell a lot of stir fry, summer a lot of salads. So, but they had no, in, no culinary knowledge. So they said, we need a consultant who's also a chef. So I go through several stages of saying, well, I understand how to make a stir fry. I understand what kitchen equipment you need. And I understand, you know, how to train your cooks to make The food. So you become both directly a culinary advisor and trainer, but also like almost like a little bit of an air traffic controller. When you see like the pilots going the wrong way, you're like, no, no, over there. (laughs) Wrong runway. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So but in between those things, I do my more esoteric, smaller things.
0: I spent some time watching you cook on YouTube and other places. Uh, I just wanted to bring up a few recipes. Yes. The tortellini with jellied tomato water end up like soup dumplings, you know, from like Taiwan. Could you just explain that? Because that was pretty cool.
2: That idea came from challenging yourself to just reverse certain ideas and thought processes. So tortellini and Burdo, pristine, precise tortellini and really good broth. It's one of the greatest dishes in the world, I think. Then I said like, why don't we just make Burdo and tortellini? <laughs> and people looked at me like I had two heads. And so what I did was make like jellied tomato water and put in tortellini.
0: And, and the tomato water is clear
2: the right. clear liquid. And so we served them in white bowls in front of people. The tortellini were hot. They're like, where's the burrito? We're like, it's in the tartellini. People picked them up with spoons. They ate them. There was a gush of warm, clear tomato liquid. <laughs> They're like, I just had a tomato dish that has no visual relationship to tomato. It tastes more tomato than anything I've ever eaten. So that's when I have time on my hands and I feel yeah. like being a little bit of a trickster but it's also extremely technically complicated.
0: You did some other things. You, you took Japanese milk bread and turned it into malted milk bread, <laughs> which I kind of liked.
2: Well, that's easy. You know, it's like, what, what's, what's one of your greatest flavors when you grew up? A malted milkshake is delicious, you know? Right. Milk bread is basically, you know, it's like butter and sugar stabilized with flour, really. Right. <laughs> right. So one of the greatest flavor affinities is just transferred into an already delicious bread. And then it's just, like, kind of written between, like, a bread and a cookie or or bread that tastes like a cookie, you know, that tastes like a milkshake. A lot of our context of flavor is formed in our childhood, and it's a lot of those childhood memories that make people still excited when they grow up. You know, creativity has to have emotion as opposed to just self-serving and doing something that needs to be explained to be understood. That's what lacks in a lot of food today. If you have to explain it too much... It doesn't work.
0: So let's assume tomorrow you completely lose your mind and decide to open a restaurant. If you were to do that, get into the restaurant business again, what kind of restaurant would you do?
2: I would do a restaurant that cooks with fire, that cooks very simple food, but all of it with fire, with charcoal or wood. There's this relationship between fire and wood, that I've grown to love. It's something that really inspired me to cook when I was a kid because when I lived in Africa, during big celebrations, we would cook in the backyard over like an outdoor stove. If you go to, to Spain now, Barcelona, Madrid, and you go to these restaurants that all serve food a la brasa, chicken mm-hmm. cooked in charcoal, vegetables cooked on the plancha, you know, razor clams just like shaken over a fire, That food's amazing. It's incredible. And it it really brings food back to nature without adding extraneous processes or techniques at all. And what that allows you to do is just serve way better food for way less money and give the public a better experience and your cooks a better quality of life. You know, rather than sitting in a pan in a French restaurant throwing in a New York strip wait until it browns to a certain point, in it for like another three minutes with a spoon, get (laughs) carpal tunnel syndrome, (laughs) you know. Amazing food, simple, fire. You're a really interesting guy because on
0: one hand, you're making soup dumplings with jelly tomato water for fun. On the other hand, you know, done, uh, you know, Florentine steak with a little arugula and, and parmesan. You like both ends of the spectrum.
2: Right? Yeah, I think I think it's possible. That's what I said about Lagos. It's possible yeah. for all ends of the spectrum to exist and coexist in peace. Absolutely,
0: Shola, it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on Mill Street. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: That was Chef Shola Oliniola. This is Mill Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Shrimp, orzo, and zucchini with ouzo and mint. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, once in a while on the show, I interview someone who paints a picture of a place that I really want to go. Mariana Leva-Tataki is from Crete. I interviewed her not too long ago. A chef, you know, a cookbook author. I think their family had a tavern on the water. Your father still there, a small boat fisherman. The ingredients just sound amazing. Obviously, a lot of it's seafood. But one of the recipes I talked with her about was essentially risotto, but she uses orzo instead of arborio rice with a very similar method. I thought that was pretty cool.
8: It is, Chris, but it also makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of starch from that pasta, and you can use that starch to your benefit to make kind of a creamy sauce like you would with a risotto. One thing she does to start, though, is make her own broth with shrimp shells. So this orzo has shrimp in it. She takes the shells and roasts them, and then makes a broth from it. Mm. Our version simplifies it a little bit. We make that broth in the saucepan on the stovetop and just really high heat and let those shrimp shells brown, and that's going to add a lot of flavor to the broth.
0: So, yeah, it also has zucchini, it has uzo and mint, one of my favorite herbs. Is it the basic risotto method here?
8: For the most part, yeah. I mean, it goes a lot quicker. It's at a slightly higher heat than you would probably do risotto. So you make the broth and then sort of toast the orzo, add the aromatics, and then cook those vegetables. There's tomatoes and zucchini, a little bit of fennel seed, which kind of plays off the flavor of the ouzo. And then you add the broth a little at a time, just like you would with risotto.
0: The shrimp? Now, you mentioned making a broth, but are we throwing away the shrimp or are we going to add them to this risotto? <laughs> we're just going to
8: have shrimp cocktail. No, of course, we're going to use shrimp in here as well. Those get added at the very end. We want to make sure those shrimps stay really nice and plump and tender.
0: So this is what, like a 20-minute recipe, something like that?
8: Yeah, really quick. And then at the very, very end, we have that ouzo, which has that sort of anise flavor, kind of like fennel, and some lemon zest and mint.
0: So if you're tired with the same old risotto recipe, you can try shrimp, orzo, and zucchini with ouzo and mint from Mariana in Crete. Thank you, Lynn.
8: You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for shrimp, orzo, and zucchini with ouzo and mint at MilkStreetRadio.com.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman teaches us how to make better pasta salad. We'll be right back.
8: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Bridget from Montpelier, Vermont. How can we help you today? My son and I really like to make crepes, and we've been
6: doing it for a while. The recipe that we found on the internet works fine, but it has a couple of steps that make it kind of a pain. One is that you make it in a blender, then you have to clean the blender. And the other is that it says to wait 30 minutes before you can make the crepes, which makes it a little hard to you know, do on a quick morning when you're hungry.
4: I was wondering if both of those steps are necessary or adding anything to a crepe recipe. First of all, do you fill them, or do you just eat them straight up? My son usually fills them with Nutella, maybe a banana, some strawberries, that kind of thing. brilliant. Well, there's two issues. I like to make it in the blender. It's just so easy. You throw it in. You hit the button. Boom, you're done. Um, You could certainly do it by hand, but it will take longer to get it somewhat smoother. I also like the resting period. I don't know if it's 100% necessary with such a wet batter to let the gluten relax, but I always give it a rest. And also, I think the flour sort of absorbs the liquid better. It becomes more smooth and more consistent texture. And also, the thing about when you blend it, it creates all these bubbles. And for me, I don't want the bubbles in my crepes. You know, I want it to calm down and settle down and absorb the liquid. But At the end of the day, if you mixed it by hand and made them right away, I don't think it would be terrible. Let me just throw out something else that you can do, which is you could make the crepe batter, let it rest, make the crepes, and then you can freeze them, you know, already made. So, Chris, what do you think?
0: The only thing I have to add is I interviewed Jonathan Waxman a while back, you know, Barbuda restaurant in New York. He said that his secret to crepe was adding more melted butter to the batter, so he uses no butter or oil or anything in the crepe pan itself.
4: Oh, that's interesting.
0: And I thought that was really something I never thought of.
4: But would you make it in the blender, and would you insist that it rest?
0: You know, I've always thought and I've always said, going along with my motto, always wrong but never in doubt, that you should let it rest for 30 minutes. But I know lots of other people have said gluten development is not an issue here.
4: So do you think she could just mix it by hand and Yes.
0: I don't think the batter's the hard part. I think getting
4: it's the, the, the right
0: pan and the right amount of heat. Yeah. That's really the tricky part.
4: My son is pretty good at that part.
0: Then you're good. You're good to go.
4: I'm just impressed with you too. So you do you, you know, including no blender and no resting. All right. Let us know how that goes. Okay. We'll give it a try. Thanks, Thanks All a lot. Right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye bye.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. Give us a call anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. The number once again is 855-426-9843, or you can email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Margaret from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Margaret from Portland, Oregon. How can we help you today? Many years ago, like 50
6: years ago, when I was a college student teaching myself to cook, Recipes that called for whole chickens were always three and a half to four pounds. But now, recipes still say three and a half to four pounds. But when I go to the store, they're five and a half to six pounds. And I don't understand why the recipes haven't changed. And that's one part of the question. The other part is why are they so, you know, muscled up? These chickens, they're so big and they're kind of awful looking. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, I can't talk to the agricultural part of that, but I have noticed the same thing, and it is darned annoying. And you're going to need to up the cooking time of anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes for a five to seven pounder. And you're going to have to yes. go with the internal temperature of the inner thigh, roughly uh-huh. looking at one seventy 170, one seventy five. And uh, yeah. just start checking it sooner than you think you should and, and taking its temperature, because that's the only way to really know if it's been cooked properly. Chris?
0: If you have a good supermarket or butcher, you can get three and a half to four pounders. They tend to be from the higher quality suppliers. Um, and the uh-huh. really good chickens, the breasts are not as large. Yeah, I know. And the difference in taste is enormous. So if you can find those, I suggest it. secondly... My basic recipe is you spatchcock, you take the backbone out, which is not hard to do if you have a pair of shears, flatten it, 375 oven until it's done, and you're not going to have to roast it a ton more if it's spatchcocked because the heat's going to get to it pretty evenly. Uh huh. So I don't really time it anymore. I just throw in a 375 oven, check it after 45 minutes, and then keep checking it. But I think even a five-pound bird, you could do an hour and 15 minutes, hour and 20 minutes probably if it's spatchcocked.
4: All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners.
6: Hi, my name is Tim. I'm calling you from Cincinnati, Ohio. This is a tip that I've learned the hard
4: way. Uh, Read a recipe all the way through to the end before you decide to make it. Uh, I have not done this in the past and ended up finding out three-quarters of the way through that it needs to marinate overnight in the refrigerator. So, quick tips, hard learned, but good to know. Thanks.
0: By the way, if you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash tips. Next up, it's Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? Hey,
9: Chris. How's it going? Good. I'm going to say two words, and I just want you to give me your immediate gut reaction.
0: Yeah. Pasta salad. Oh, my God. No. (laughs) Yeah. No, please. Please don't. Does this have, it's cold and has mayonnaise and little little chopped up olives in it or something?
9: Yeah, so you, you, I'm, you had the, the right reaction, Chris, because I understand that that is many people's reaction. You know, pasta salad is kind of gloopy and gloppy and mushy. Yeah. It usually comes to the summer cookout with the person who forgot they were supposed to bring something, so they stopped at the supermarket and bought the cheapest prepackaged side they could find. Pasta salad's not good. No. But I, I think that, It's correlation, not causation. People are making bad pasta salads, but that does not mean that pasta salad itself is bad. That's deeply philosophical. Yes. I am here
0: to try to convince you that pasta salad can be great. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You you never choose an easy thing to do. It's always heavy lifting. Go ahead.
9: Yeah. so, So, all right first of all, there's a couple classic mistakes that people make with pasta salad. Uh, And look, most of the time you're going to see pasta salads in the warmer weather. And you said the keyword, you said mayonnaise. Keep the mayonnaise the heck away from your pasta salad. Why do you want mayonnaise? A pasta salad needs to be something that you can make before your company arrives or bring to a party. And that can sit out for several hours without degrading. And anything that's coated in mayonnaise is probably not going to check those boxes.
0: Uh, yes, well, so far, so good. Yeah. Okay.
9: You want your pasta salad to be light and acidic. I think that olives can be great, but you want some lemon juice, you want vinegar, you want bright, crisp flavors, not creamy, gooey, mushy flavors and textures. So that, that could mean <laughs> feta cheese, olives, capers, citrus. You know, there, there are a million different ways to get it in there. But you need tangy, tart, acidic, more so than creamy.
0: Well, I, I guess there's a more fundamental issue here. I mean, this is yeah. this is th- almost theological. I mean, that, that's <laughs> how far we're going with this. Yeah. I mean, should pasta ever be served cold? Forget about the dressing, but but just as a culinary, you know, mountain to cross, is the, how do you feel about that? You make a great point, Chris. I think this is another problem with a lot of pasta salads. I don't think they
9: should be served cold. They should be served room temperature. Okay. Ideally, they will be made the day they're served, so they will never be refrigerated because the refrigerator is going to dry out your pasta. Okay. All right. The other thing is, you know, because you want the pasta salad to be able to sit for several hours, you need to undercook your pasta the way you would if you were going to be making a baked pasta dish. Hmm. You're effectively saucing your pasta... And it's going to sit in its sauce for a couple of hours. Its sauce, in this case, is really more of a dressing, but same concept. It's sitting in some kind of liquid that is going to continue to soak into the pasta. So that's a good point. Undercook the pasta, dress it an hour or two in advance, let that dressing soak into the pasta in a way that will get it up to the right level of cookedness and also infuse it with flavor. I agree. That's a good, a good observation. Great. And now I'm going to bring it all home for you, Chris. The last thing is Here that you go. Most people are using the wrong pasta shape. Okay. What's the most common shape you see in pasta salads? Macaroni. Macaroni. That's right. The the other one that I see too often is fusilli. Right. Fusilli. I mean, first of all, I mean someone should just put fusilli out of its misery. Period. Oh boy. That's not a good shape.
0: It does not cook evenly. I think that's the Italian consulate on line too. <laughs>
8: calling you at this point.
0: Yeah. But yeah. it's especially a bad shape for
9: pasta salad because it has a very high surface area in relation to volume, and has all right. those spirals. Right. So when it sits in any kind of dressing for an hour or two, it is going to, to disintegrate. And indeed, that's what usually happens with fusilli. Macaroni also, just too soft. It's too small. It can't stand up to the dressing. You want any kind of thick, meaty shape that is easily forkable. You don't want something like thick and huge. Uh, I love a gemelli, which mm-hmm. is the, the sort yep. of two small tubes twisted together. Um, a cavatappi, something that will be thick and meaty, but also small that can stand up to the dressing while still providing nice
0: size bites. It always sounds like you spent months in your basement in the lab <laughs> uh, adjusting adjusting dressing intake. There yeah. different, <laughs> different shapes of, of pastas, right? <laughs>
9: Uh, yeah, I mean, look—that's uh, you're not you're not far off, Chris. <laughs>
0: yeah,
9: you're, you're a fun guy, <laughs> but but I have made my case to you, oh, wise one. Have I won you over? Do you can you see a, a world where pasta salad could be good?
0: Yeah, I, I admit that what you say makes sense. The only thing I'm a, a little concerned about is like if you leave this pasta salad out for a couple hours, do you have to worry uh, about food safety, or is nothing in a pasta salad going to potentially cause a problem? I mean. I wouldn't put something in there that was
9: especially perishable. Um, but you know most first of all if you put acid and vinegar on there that will help you might want to give it a stir now and again you um, look six hours might be a long time to leave it out but you should be able to leave it out for a few hours a little bit of crumbled cheese on there cheese should be fine at room temperature for several hours um, okay. you know I probably wouldn't put like you know sashimi in there um, but I think that most types of things that you would put in a, in a salad I think you'd be fine
0: you no know, you can tell I'm getting old because I'm asking food safety questions <laughs> I just caught myself man that's That's a bad sign. (laughs) It's like it's all over for me. Right. Chris,
9: is this going to give me (laughs) agita?
0: This is a digestion (laughs) problem here. (laughs) Dan Pashman, you've come up against one of the great issues in the culinary world, which is pasta salad. And I think you've made some good points. I, I will give it a try. Thank you. I'll count that as a win. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Food Podcast that's it for this week's show if you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode you can download milk street radio on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you find your podcast to learn more about milk street please go to 177milkstreet.com there you can find all of our recipes take a free online cooking class or order our latest cookbook which is tuesday nights mediterranean You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories. And thanks, as always, for listening.
1: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tureski, Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sidney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Eggloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.